You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious and merciful God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for your word, and we pray now that as it is read and proclaimed, that your spirit would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to hear what you're saying to us today, that we may love you more and love our neighbor better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And these lights are bright. (laughs) Morning. My name's Nan Clark, and I'm part of the pastoral care team here at Third Church. I'm glad to be able to be here with you this morning and sharing God's word. So earlier this summer, Boyd and I got hooked on a TV series called Silo. Has anybody seen it? Oh, man. Well, I think it's pretty new. Um, So it's about a post-apocalyptic dystopian society living underground in a huge silo, safe from the toxic world above. Sounds really exciting, doesn't it? (laughs) So there's about 10,000 of them. They don't know who they are or why they're there. All they know is it's not yet safe to go outside. There's a lot of intrigue and conflict. And when we watched it the first time, we were pretty sure that we knew where the story was going. But the ending was a complete surprise. Now, don't worry. You don't need a spoiler alert here. I'm not going to tell you what happened. (laughs) But what intrigued us was we watched it again. Our kids were visiting, and we told them about it, so they said, let's watch it. So we decided to watch it together, and every night after the kids were in bed, we'd watch one installment. And um, what we realized as we watched it again was that there were actually clues embedded in the story pointing to where the ending was going. We had just simply overlooked the clues. We didn't see them as important, so they didn't help us figure out what the ending was. So um, a good story really always looks very different when you know the ending, when you reread it knowing the ending. What we're doing in our preaching series this summer is looking back at small stories in the Old Testament And we're finding clues or signposts in them that point to Jesus and his coming kingdom. Today, we're going to look at Deborah. She's a character in the book of Judges. So we're going to do three things today. We'll look at the text as though we're reading it for the first time. And I know there may be many of us here today who actually are hearing it for the first time. I can't say that I've ever heard a sermon on Deborah, and the whole book of Judges is pretty depressing. 
it's not exactly on the top 10 preachable books of the Bible. But it is important for us to hear the text like the ancient Israelites would have. Uh, because they did not know the twist that God's story was going to take. Then we'll look at two clues that are embedded in the text and how they point to Jesus and as our promised deliverer. And finally, we'll reflect on how this scripture might inform the way we live today in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. So because this is an Old Testament story, often the names of the people and the places are really unfamiliar to us and really hard to pronounce, too. Um, so I'm going to have a map up on here, and I just want to orient us to what's happening in this story. So there's four main characters. There's Deborah, and she mostly is um, judging down in between Ramah and Bethel, down at the bottom there. There's um, Sisera, who's a military general in Israel, and he's way up north in Hazor. Then there's um, Sisera, who's the uh, commander of the Canaanite army, and here he's in Harasheth Hagoyim. And then just to the north um, east of him is that one red dot. That's Mount Tabor. And there's a woman called Jael. She lives there. She's in at the end of the story. We're not going to actually talk about her today. But what we'll see is, as Corey reads the text, all the movement of the story flows towards Tabor. So I think if you can just watch the map and listen to the story, you might not get distracted by all the place names. <laughs> all right, let's hear God's word. Judges 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hagoyim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapodoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give him into your hands. Barak said to her, okay, if you go with me, I'll go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Herosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots 
fitted with iron. You're supposed to feel really terrified there at that moment. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, an army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth, Pagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword, not a man left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael. And we're not going to read that it's a little bit there. It's pretty violent. You can read it later. Jael really nails it, if you get, get what I mean. Um, or you can read that later. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. So, first, let's um, have a little context. Uh, the book of Judges describes a really low point in the early history of Israel. There's a repeating pattern throughout the book. The people abandon God and worship idols. God allows a foreign nation to conquer and oppress them. The people cry out to God for deliverance. God raises up a judge to deliver them. And they have peace until the death of the judge, and then the pattern starts again. The book describes over its course a downward spiral that finally ends tragically with anarchy and civil war. Deborah's the fourth of the 12 judges, and her story is in chapters four and chapter five. Chapter four is the historical narrative Chapter five is the poetic retelling of the story in a song uh, that is attributed to Deborah and Barak. So let's look at Deborah as though we're reading about her for the first time. As the narrative opens, we learn that Jabin, the king of Canaan, has been oppressing Israel for 20 years. The commander of Jabin's army is Sisera, and he is terrorizing the Israelites. He has vastly superior technology. The Israel, Israelites do not stand a chance against his war machine. They're outnumbered and outpowered, and they know their situation is desperate. That's why they're crying out to God to deliver them from the Canaanites. In response to their prayers, the Lord raises up Deborah, Deborah's an unexpected choice. She's the only female of all the 12 judges. She's the only judge that we see adjudicating the disputes that people have. And since the author of Judges describes this period as a time when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, we can only imagine how many disputes she had to settle. Deborah's job is to adjudicate these disputes based on the covenant 
that God made with his people, and hopefully at the same time remind them of their promises to live in covenant faithfulness with the Lord. Presumably, the people come to her because they respect her wisdom and her authority, with which she dispenses judges justice according to the law. I think it's also worth noting that in a society when the study and application of the law would have been restricted to men, her ability to discern and guide the people is truly amazing. Going the wrong way. Here we go. So Deborah is also surprising and that she's the only judge who's a prophet. A prophet in the Old Testament is someone who speaks for God in a time of chaos and unrelenting suffering caused by Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. Deborah remains faithful, trusting in God's goodness and faithfulness, despite all the evidence to the contrary. When God gives her a word for Barak, she doesn't question it or hesitate to deliver it. She summons Barak and tells him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 Israelites and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. She speaks God's word to Barak with authority and confidence. Curiously, Barak responds that he'll only go if Deborah goes with him. It's pretty astounding to me in that patriarchal culture that the commander of Israel's army wants a woman to go with him to the battle. His request request gives us insight into the level of trust and respect he has for Deborah's prophetic leadership. It's as though he's saying, if you go with me, I know that God will go there too. But Deborah has the wisdom to recognize the danger in Barak's request. Her job as a prophet is not to encourage people to follow her and trust in her, but to trust and follow the Lord. I love that she doesn't shame Barak for his misguided trust, nor is she intimidated by him. She has the courage to tell him that his request is not without consequences. She will go with him but his role as a hero in the story will be diminished. So Deborah goes with Barak and his 10,000 soldiers to Mount Tabor. Sisera brings his army and his 900 iron chariots, confident in his ability to humiliate the Israelites yet again. Unlike most of the other judges, Deborah is not a trained military leader. As a prophet, her job is to discern the right moment for Barak to lead the charge down the mountain, and then she commands him to go, trusting in God's promise to somehow enable the Israelites to defeat the enemy 
subs and that's exactly what happens. God fulfills the promise that Deborah prophesied, and we find out that um, God does rout Sisera's army, and he delivers the Israelites. Subsequently, at the end of chapter 5, at the song, after the song, we learn that as a result of Deborah's leadership, Israel had peace for 40 years. So now that we're more familiar with the text, I'd like to just highlight quickly one way the Israelites might have understood it. It's a reminder of God's relentless pursuit of his people. Even when the predicament the people are in is of their own making, God does not abandon them. When they call out to him, he still hears and answers What a comfort for the people to know that God, their God, will never give up on them. But that's not the only way to read the text. Let's think for a minute about what clues are embedded in it that point to where God's big story is ultimately going. One clue is the Israelites themselves. The reason God needs to keep raising up a deliverer for them is that they just keep rejecting him and his ways. Remember again how the author summed up the book. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The author mistakenly thinks that the problem is that the people have no king. But if we read on to the books of Samuel and Kings, we find the same repeating pattern. Even with good kings like David and Solomon, the Israelites inevitably revert to their unfaithful ways. Over time, God speaks to his people through the prophets. They warn the people that if they reject God's ways, foreign nations will conquer them and take them into exile. And sadly, that's what happens. So are you starting to maybe see that the Israelites have a problem that no human judge or king can remedy? Foreign oppression is actually not their problem. It's just a symptom of their problem. The real problem is the intractable human desire for autonomy, to do what is right in their own eyes. To be sure... The Israelites do need someone to deliver them, but not from the Canaanites. They need someone who can deliver them from their own stubborn, willful hearts. Christians reread the Old Testament from the perspective of believing that Jesus is the only one who can deliver us from the lie that has plagued us since Adam and Eve, believing that we can be like God. Deborah herself provides the second clue. Deliverance can come in unexpected ways. Unlike the other judges, as we've said, Deborah is a woman, she's a prophet, and she's not a military leader. I love that all through scripture, 
God seems to delight in surprising his people by the people he uses. We've seen that in our sermon series so far. We've seen Jacob, who was the younger son, but gets the blessing. We've seen Joseph, who is a real pain in the neck to his older brothers, and they sold him into slavery, but he ends up being the one to deliver his people. We've seen Moses, who was afraid of people, but became a great leader. And last week, we saw Ruth, who was a foreigner, but was grafted into the bloodline of Jesus. All played important roles in the unfolding of God's story. But Jesus is an even greater surprise. And I'd like to look just for a few minutes at some of the ways he doesn't fit the mold of Israel's expected deliverer. He's not born in a palace, but he's born in a stable to humble parents with no social standing. He comes from the wrong side of the tracks. Remember when Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Couldn't believe it. Not possible. He has authority to heal the sick, cast out demons, multiply loaves and fishes, calm the storm, and raise the dead. People are amazed at his authority. It's not at all like the hypocritical and self-serving authority of the religious leaders. He has compassion on people, and he moves toward them. He knows people's thoughts and motives. But the biggest surprise is that in Jesus, God himself comes to deliver his people. And he achieves that deliverance not on the battlefield, but on the cross. It is there that Jesus does what no other judge, king, prophet, priest, or ruler could ever do. This isn't what the people are expecting. And they're in for an even big surprise. The deliverance Jesus brings is not just for the Jews. It's for all people, Jew and Gentile. This is where God's big story was always going. But we only see that when we reread Deborah in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. So in the last few minutes, what I'd like to do is reflect on how the biblical story shapes how we live today as God's people. I remember so clearly the first time I read the book of Judges. I was actually living in France. We had no, the only heat was this, was this little oven that I'd open while the little kids were sleeping. I'd open the door and sit, and I had a living Bible. I was going to read through the whole Bible. It was so cold, and I'd sit in front of the open heating stove, and I read it. That was a long time ago. Anyhow, (laughs) um, I just so clearly remember my reaction as I was reading it. What's wrong with these people, I thought. God's done all these amazing things for them. Then they promise to be faithful. 
but somehow they can just never keep that promise. How can they be so blind? Don't they get it? And then slowly it began to dawn on me. Ouch, I'm just like them. How often I believe the lie that I need to be in control, that my way is the right way, that my problem is somebody else and not the deception of my own heart. And I know, I know, I talk to a lot of you. I know I'm not alone in this struggle. The good news is that when we recognize we have a heart problem, we have Jesus and his deliverance right now. But in another way, we're not like the Israelites. We stand in a very different place in God's story. We have experienced firsthand the promise of the deliverer. We believe that Jesus has changed our hearts. He's done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So why then do we keep reverting to our old ways? I think the answer lies in what we call the already, not yet. Yes, we believe that Jesus has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of our own self-rule. But because we still live in a broken world, the temptation is always there to seize back control, to trust ourselves rather than God. While we wait for Jesus to return and establish God's kingdom on earth, we are in the process of learning how to yield to God's will for our lives. That's the journey we're on. If we choose to see it, I really do believe that in all the circumstances and relationships in our lives, God is graciously exposing our hearts, not so we'll feel bad about ourselves, but so we'll live into the deliverance that is already ours. I know it's not easy, trust me, (laughs) but the power of the spirit within us enables us to say no to the illusion that we are in control and yes to trusting God. I've just sort of been mulling over this as I've worked on the sermon. What if we ourselves become clues or signposts for the people around us? Like Deborah, our lives can point people to Jesus and his power to deliver us from ourselves. Our lives can point to where God's as yet unfinished story is ultimately going. Folks, we're creatures. We are not the creator. Humbly recognizing who we are and yielding control to our faithful God is life-giving, both to us and to those around us. So I'd encourage you this week to reflect on where in your life God maybe is asking you to trust him. Where is he inviting you to be a clue 
or a signpost in his story. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus. You may feel the Holy Spirit drawing you to do that. I'd encourage you to come up after the service and Corey and I will be here to pray with you. Or if there's an area of your life where you're struggling to give up control, to trust God, we'd welcome you too, and we'd love to pray with you. Let's close in prayer. Merciful God, words seem so inadequate to express our gratitude for what you have done for us. You are patient and faithful, relentlessly committed to fulfilling your purposes for all creation. Thank you that you invite us to participate in your story. Give us eyes to see where you are working to change our hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh so that our lives will point to Jesus, the one in whose name we pray. Amen.